Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, yes, and uh, making more history every week. Welcome in to Downtown, the podcast, episode number 181. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got a couple of fine conversations for you this time around. Uh, Coming up in the second half of the podcast this week, we talk with the writer for the Portland Press Herald and author Bob Keyes about his brand new book called The Isolation Artist, all about uh, noted artist Robert Indiana, who spent the last four decades or so of his life on an island in Maine, died under mysterious mysterious circumstances, and then... uh, Some questions about whether some of his late works of art were even actually his. We'll hear all about that from Bob a little bit later on. But up first, one of our favorites on the podcast and on our radio show. He's been coming on with us for more than a decade now, talking about actor and activist Mike Farrell. You know him from his many seasons as B.J. Honeycutt on MASH. He's the author of a wonderful memoir, Just Call Me Mike. And he's been been a tireless uh, activist and advocate uh, in a number of areas through the years. Uh, We had a chance to talk about a number of different topics when we visited with Mike Farrell here on Downtown. Hello there, Mike. Hi, Rich. Nice to hear from you. Good to hear from you again. How have you been since last we spoke? Oh, you know, uh, we're living under the same Paul that everybody (laughs) else is under this pandemic. But um, we're surviving, thank you, and uh, doing well, just trying to be careful. Well, how did we get here, Mike? How did we get to a point where we still have over 60 million unvaccinated Americans and and so many people who have fallen victim to misinformation? Yeah, it is very sad that the the degree of infection that has taken place, and by that I don't mean the, the, the disease itself, but the infection in people's minds that has been cast by the wrong-headed political leadership that has, um, I think, been been really injurious to us as a country. Um, people people have decided that this is a, uh, a political fight rather than a simple uh, health and, and safety matter. And it's, uh, it, it's really frustrating that it has become so ugly um, in so many areas of this of the country today. It, it's it, it's worrisome to me that people can be so misguided and so uh, uh, manipulated. I guess mm. is the word by their own anger and fears into following um, a, a kind of line that is utter baloney and really uh, harmful. And I remember the emphasis on on science education that came uh, in, in the days after Sputnik and yeah. the push that we had there. Was there a turning point that, that you can identify? When did science suddenly become the enemy and, and a certain portion of this country stop trusting and believing in our scientists? Well, uh, I, I, you know, I'd hate to put everything at the feet of Donald Trump, but, but a, a significant step in that direction, I think, was taken probably in the 80s when people began to think that, you know, government is not the uh, the answer to your problems. Government is the problem. I mean, that's what we were told from on high. 
And when that sort of thing, that sort of lopsided thinking is imposed from leadership, uh, it can it can really confuse things. And uh, I've never seen an a, as overtly anti-science uh, agenda uh, laid out for people in this country as uh, as obviously as has been the case for the last four plus years now. But it's been coming. Uh, there's been a kind of um, cynicism that has crept in and a kind of um, uh, uh, sense that we're being taken advantage of mm. um, by those in positions of power. And unfortunately, that's not un- not altogether uh, false. Uh, you know, we certain people in positions of power have been trying to take advantage and have been successful at it. And all that does is refeed that um, sense of um, uh, uh, opposition to whatever is being said from those in authority. And when you become anti-authoritarian, utterly anti-authoritarian, I think you're you're in danger of um, crossing a line into what we're seeing today, which is, you know, the government is the enemy. Well, and we certainly saw that uh, in the events of January 6th. And uh, and I think it's interesting, too, how many former military and sometimes active military people were involved in that, um, off-duty police officers. And, and certainly, I'm sure you can understand, uh, as, as somebody who served in the military, the feeling that people would have that maybe their government did abandon them with the mistakes we made uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan over the course of the last 20 years. Yeah, I think that's quite right. And and I I was in the Marines, and in the Marines you learn to do what the uh, what the people in charge tell you, and and mostly it's a matter of uh, meeting um, the demands of the authorities uh, against w- which posit you against the bad guy, whoever the bad guy might be. And when you when you wrap the flag around that. And what we're seeing today is people uh, people's abuse of the flag. Uh, actually, as you mentioned in uh, January 6th, the beating police officers who were guarding the Capitol with the flag. I mean, that, if there's not a, if there was, I'm not a big believer in blasphemy, but if there is blasphemy, that seems to me to be it. Um, so when you when you when, when you when you tell people that they've got to mind the boss, aside from the fact that you know we have built into our laws and our certainly the human rights covenants that we've signed, the idea that you you never um, that 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 to obey a, a dishonest and inappropriate law is not the job of the person in service. It is the job of the person in service to refuse to obey such a law. You know, you, the typical—I mean, the, 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 the typical example of that is a Nazi soldier who did some um, uh, horrific things at the at the behest of the authorities. And when asked why they did it, they said, "You know, I was only following orders." Well, um, when the orders are crooked, when the orders are ugly and anti-human and wrong, you have to have uh, an ability to not follow them. We're talking with Mike Farrell here on Downtown. I, I don't think it's uh, 
I don't think people are blowing things out of proportion to say that with some of these voter suppression laws that have been enacted in southern states that we're, we're fighting to save democracy here and this investigation into the events of January 6th are a part of that. But I think it's also important that the party that's in power right now utilizes that power to make sure that voting rights are secure going forward. I couldn't agree more. And the, the, the voter suppression tactics that are being put into law uh, that you describe are not only in the South, you know, it's happening in Idaho and it's happening in uh, some of the central states as well. And we have to be very careful um, that, that, that this whole notion now that y- people's freedom is at risk if they are being required to wear a mask for the good of public safety um, is a, is a mis- misuse of the whole concept of freedom. I mean, I, I want to say, do you, don't you put on a seatbelt when you get in and drive your car? Uh, aren't there things that you've been told? You know, don't you have your kids get the PTD, whatever those three shots that uh, the children get to, to keep them from getting ca- um, measles and mumps and, and, and uh, uh, whooping cough? Um, aren't there things that the government has understood as a result of science? Aren't there things that the government has come to understand that are good for the for the benefit of the public um, that we have to allow ourselves? I'm a motorcycle rider. Um, I wear a helmet. I wear a helmet because it's smart. Mm. But I remember when helmets became the requirement, the legal requirement in some states, there was a huge outcry. You're, you're, you're encroaching on my freedom. And when... Your freedom puts the public at risk, then it seems to me that your freedom needs to be uh, encroached <laughs> upon a little bit um, for the benefit of the of the larger community. Absolutely. I, mean, I couldn't say that better. Well, as somebody who works in schools, and we've been battling this now for, for a year and a half, too, that I mask up every day, students mask up every day, and we've just come to accept that as as part of the way we go about things. And uh, every time I catch a student with that mask falling down, I look at them and I say, who's, who are you protecting with your mask? Protecting you, Mr. Kimball. Yes. Thank you very much. That's right. Let's keep doing the right thing to help other people. Yeah. You know, that's exactly right. It's thinking of the other and that's hard for some folks. Um, don't bother me with you know, the good of the other. I, I want to take care of my own freedoms. Well, that's, um, that's, that, that becomes, um, anarchy. It's really not about freedom. It's about uh, thinking only of oneself and to hell with everybody else. Uh, We saw a little bit of this political activism uh, out where you are with the California recall vote. Uh, I'm sure you were happy to see the way that turned out. I was indeed. I'm a big fan of Gavin Newsom, and um, uh, I'm lucky enough to have met him a few times. And he's, um, he's a really terrific man and a wonderful I think he has a big future in in politics if he chooses to maintain it. Um, but yeah, the the I hate to be too pointed about it, but the Trump folks um, saw a um, uh, an opening because of a stupid mistake he made uh, after declaring a moratorium on or uh, declaring a mask requirement and then going to a dinner that was. Uh, everything that he said people didn't do. <laughs> uh, um, I think before it was all official, 
Um, and he, you know, he looked like a hypocrite, which, and, and he apologized for it because, in fact, it was a, a stupid and, and, and hypocritical thing to do. But they grabbed onto that man and ran with it and made him out to be, a, you know, another thoughtless, meaning, meaningless uh, uh, politician who gave not a whit for the public, but all for himself. And, and in fact, he's done some really wonderful things. Uh, and as you know, I'm a, uh, a very big uh, uh, supporter of advocate of uh, reforming the prison system and doing away with the death penalty. And, right, and you're still under the moratorium he issued, right? We are. Yeah, he, he declared a moratorium, and it will it will continue as long as he's in office. And I'm hoping that um, before he leaves office, we can generate enough enthusiasm on the part of the legislature to. Unfortunately, it's built into our Constitution, so we have to change our Constitution in order to get rid of it. But I believe we will. Over the last, well, we talk about what's happened in this country over the last four or five years. At least in some quarters, there has been a swing to the right. Has that impacted your efforts and the efforts of others to eliminate the death penalty nationwide? Actually, no. It's been interesting. There's a great movement now. Uh, conservatives against the death penalty, because conservatives have become have come to understand. You know, it used to be thought of as it's, it's it's a squishy liberal issue, but we've always made the point that it's it's a waste of money. It's a government it's a government um, program that is a, that is not only inappropriate but it is uh, harmful, and it is hideously expensive. When life in prison without the possibility of parole, which is the option in most states today um, is, is uh, um, while in my view still cruel, um, not uh, hideously expensive, not, not as expensive as is, as is the death system. And people have, that, people, people have a difficult time understanding that. But it's a, it's a simple fact. If you, uh, if you go, have to go through the process that the re- Constitution requires, in order to validate and carry out a death sentence, it is hundreds of times more expensive than keeping somebody in prison for the rest of his or her life. Uh, Mike, we always have to ask a little bit about acting, and a listener wanted to know if you had any memories or recollection of doing a guest shot with Lee Majors on The Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, I was... I was under contract uh, at Universal at the time. I had done a show with uh, Anthony Quinn called The Man in the City, a wonderful experience for me because I got to work with one of the great actors of our history. Um, but um, once the show went down, then I was under contract at Universal, and I kind of had to do what it, well, actually I refused to do some of the things, but <laughs> primarily they, they wanted me to do their shows. And at the time, I had two young kids who thought the $6 million man was just a hoot. And uh, I got uh, the, idea, the opportunity to play a role on, the, on that show and uh, had a great fun time doing it. And I will say, when I was in, um, many years later, I was doing a play in Florida. I was doing a one-man show about Clarence Darrow, and I got a call um, backstage and uh, actually at the hotel where I was being put up from Lee saying, I live down here now and I see that you're in town 
and I'd like to have you come over and uh, and, and say hi. So it was very sweet that he uh, he remembered after all those years. <laughs> That's wonderful. What was the experience yeah. like uh, doing American Crime Story a couple years back? Oh, that's a long story, Rich. Uh, the The experience was wonderful. Um, it was a very powerful show. Um, but there were, and this is my take on what happened. When they sent me the audition, uh, the, um, the, the, the script initially, I said I want to read the whole script because the first thing they sent me was just about the well, the, the kiss uh, with the young man. Um, and I said, I'd like to see the whole script. And I, and I was very impressed with what uh, the writer had come up with uh, in terms of the character I was being asked to play. And I was thrilled to do it. And really, um, I don't know how to say this exactly because it sounds self-aggrandizing, but... Um, it stretched me as an actor to do the things mm. that called for. And I did them, and I was really anxious about seeing it on the air. And the two critical scenes that I was most excited about seeing were cut out of the show. Yeah. And it was because, um, I, as I now understand it, the wife of the man I played, who has always denied that he had any kind of other other sexual interests and or relationships, was threatening to sue. So they changed uh, uh, the story a bit, uh, having mm. to do with my character, Lee Miglin. And it broke my heart because uh, I, I really wanted, you know, to be able... And then I asked the director, I, the producer, I said, can I just privately see the scene to make sure that I did what I think I did appropriately. And he wouldn't let me. Oh, wow. So I have a, I have a bit of a sore spot about that show. Um, a lot of people who don't know that history were liked the show and um, were complimentary to me, but it's, it's one of those frustrating stories about what happens sometimes on the, cutting room, what's left on the cutting room floor, as they talk about in my business. Uh, did you have fun uh, doing a couple episodes well at television's most popular network show, NCIS? You know, I did. Um, uh, Mark was wonderful to me. We had a great time. Um, it was uh, another, you know, fun thing to do. I got to play a bad guy, which I enjoy <laughs> the opportunity to do every once in a while. Um and uh, it's a really nice company. Um, mark has made, I mean, quite a, forgive the pun, but quite a mark in the business. Um, and um, he, he's got a happy company. They, they're Cracker Jack outfit. They really know what they're doing. They're very careful about, uh, you know, uh, the, they're paying attention to the, the, the law and what happens and what's appropriate and stuff. So I had a great time. It was uh, just a lot of fun. Have you got anything coming up we should keep our eyes open for? I wish I could tell you I did. The pandemic has sort of closed things down. Right. It's just beginning to open up a bit now. I have a, have a picture I've been trying to get made for years um, that I, I won't have a role in, but uh, I would be the producer of it. Um, 
and there's some interest in it in uh, South Africa. It's an old story. I don't know if you happen to know the name Allard Lowenstein. Oh, yes, absolutely. From the anti-war movement, of course. Oh, indeed, yeah. Well, Al Al and I were friends, and um, I was heartsick when he was murdered. And um, made a I made a documentary about him, uh, my partners and I. And he wrote a book called The Brutal Mandate, and it's a, about a trip he did with two other young Americans down to what was then Southwest Africa, which was a mandatory territory under the control of apartheid South Africa. And they sneaked into this area and because they, the people were pleading at the United Nations in order to, to get the United Nations to ease up on the mandate or at least require South Africa to allow them to develop a, a non-apartheid state. And um, they couldn't get any attention. And, of course, there was a lot of hullabaloo about um, the, big, the major chief of the, uh, of the tribe down there who was, they claim, dead, and he was represented by a number of people at the U.N., but they said, no, he doesn't exist. So Al and these two young friends found a way to get into that area and um, get testimony on tape from uh, Chief Kotaku of of this tribe and um, brought it back and played it at the United Nations, and it really resulted in quite extraordinary developments for the people of what is now Namibia. And he had worked, if I remember, I worked with Bobby Kennedy on his famous, one of his famous speeches. He did, yeah, Al helped write that speech. Um, Al was very close to the Kennedys and uh, and uh, was a, a mover and a shaker, as you said, during the war. He was, um, he's the one that organized the... Um, uh, the movement of um, high, uh, uh, college student body presidents to go to the White House and confront LBJ. Actually, they only met with uh, the uh, Secretary of State, but um, to say, you know, this war is wrong and we need to get out of it. And he led the L- the Dump, uh, Dump Johnson movement. Well, I hope you're able to get that made. Would love to see it. Uh, Mike, it, it's always so good to talk. We're so grateful. You've been such a good friend of the show over the years, and we always enjoy the opportunity to talk with you. It's nice of you to say so, Rich. It's always nice to talk to you. I'm thrilled to have your interest and always happy to talk to you and hear what you're doing and see the um, the the fact that you're still out there cracking the whip. <laughs> We're- Letting people to know know the good things. <laughs> We're trying our best. Uh, please give our best to Shelley as well, and we'll talk with you again down the road, Mike. We'll do it. He's just one of our favorite people to talk to, Carrie, and uh, as nice a guy as you could ever possibly deal with. We love it when Mike Farrell pays a visit. Always a great conversation when he touches base with us, and uh, yeah, it's one of those guests that we just love to have back. And always uh, it, it, it seem, seems to be appreciative that we reached out and always willing to check in with us. Last year, even set us up with his with his wife, Shelley Fabray, and had a great conversation with her as well. Mike Farrell here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a quick break for a word from Cross Insurance. When we come back, Bob Keyes talks about his new book, The Isolation Artist. 
This is downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Nicely done. Little Zevon setting the tone perfectly. And he does that often, doesn't he? <laughs> does indeed here on downtown. Our next guest, a longtime writer for the Portland Press Herald, has got a brand new book out, The Isolation Artist, all about uh, the life and the interesting and somewhat confusing final days of artist Robert Indiana. Bob Keyes on downtown. Rich, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Why Robert Indiana is the subject of your book? Well, because he uh, he had a very interesting life in in Maine, and uh, I knew him for a number of years. And uh, he his death was sort of uh, mysterious as well, and uh, there was a big lawsuit associated with his death. And so uh, I was writing about that story for the Press Herald, and. As I continued to report the story, it just occurred to me that this is um, this is a, mu- a much bigger story than simply a story for the newspaper. And I began putting things together and decided, uh, thanks to a suggestion of my book editor, that uh, it would make a very good book. And so I took him up on that challenge. Well, I-, I knew a little bit of the Robert Indiana story, but not a lot of the details. And man, this this book read like a well-written detective novel. There is there is everything in it from uh, a wonderful and interesting cast of characters to suspicions of uh, forgery, uh, the deception that you mentioned in the title, and then mystery not just about the cause of death, but even, even when Robert Indiana died. As you write, the last years of his life are murky, and that, that seems to be pretty consistent with much of his life story. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And it's a very good summarization uh, of the a summary of both the book and uh, of his life. He he came to Maine in the late 1970s from New York by way of Indiana. And um, he came to Maine with a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Uh, uh, I love your intro music. You know, he made the piece <laughs> love, L-O-V-E, with the tilted O and two letters over each other. And um, he, he made that piece in the 1960s in the 1960s, but never benefited from it in a financial sense. And the, and while the, the piece itself gained a lot of recognition and um, widespread exposure, Indiana himself uh, always remained uh, a little bit less known than the piece itself. And, and that created some resentment. And, and that resentment expressed itself in anger. And he moved to Maine somewhat of an angry and bitter man in the late 1970s. And um, 
And some of the things that plagued him in New York followed him into Maine. And um, uh, he just uh, – love became a piece that defined his life and career, but he was so much more than that. And um, – uh, so, you know, he, he, he spent his life in Maine fighting some of the demons that uh, he inherited from New York. And uh, his he, uh, his time in Maine was marked by some very peaceful years as well as some very controversial years. And then as you, you use the word murky, and that is a perfect way to describe his final years. There's a lot of intrigue around uh, how he lived his final years involving both the work that we know he made legitimately, the work he might have <laughs> – endorsed casually and work that he definitely hadn't, or I shouldn't say definitely, but likely had very little to do with. I thought it was very interesting to learn in your book, too, that he he was not crazy about being lumped into that pop art world with people like Andy Warhol and Lichtenstein. No, he didn't like that at all. He, he, he believed that his work had um, uh, a, a more a noble cause, and he wanted to he wanted to cast his work in 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 uh, marble and bronze and whatnot because he wanted to make sure it lasted forever. He didn't see himself as a pop artist. He saw himself as a as an artist who had something um, more significant to say and something that um, would outlast whatever trends of the art world might be. And he was right about that. Actually, he absolutely. Um, created work that outlasted um, whatever trends might have existed in the 1960s and 70s, and that's one of the reasons we're still talking about it. He ended up coming to Vinyl Haven and, and settling into uh, an old meeting hall, the Star of Hope. Uh, did that building turn out to be a pretty good metaphor for his life? Oh, well, no question about that. Uh, he came to Maine, as you noted, in, in uh, the late 1970s because um, he, wa- he wanted – the Star of Hope was this huge place. It was a, it was a large three-story building, and he had been displaced from his studios and his homes in New York at least twice um, in, in the 1960s and early 1970s. And after a very disruptive youth in Indiana, um, he lived in 21 homes in the first seven 17 years of his life. He had no opportunity to put down roots or establish any semblance of, of a belonging. Maine offered that to him, not only just Maine, but an island in Maine, and not only just an island in Maine, but a large building that was arguably the largest building on the island, or one of the biggest buildings on the island. And he inhabited it entirely with his personality and his artwork. And it became absolutely the thing he wanted most of all, which was a place where he could make a lasting expression of himself and his art. And that is what it offered him, and that was both a challenge and also a reward of his life in Maine. And he spent 40 years here, both achieving that dream and then uh, watching it crumble around him. We're talking with Bob Keyes here on Downtown. Uh, Relations with the locals uh, were certainly strained at times. They didn't quite know what to make of Robert Indiana, and then all that made worse by, by the lawsuits and by reports of sexual indiscretions. Yes, those though the reports of the sexual indiscretions uh, surfaced in the early 1990s, and that was his first 
foray of uh, of a lot of conflict and tension, at least in a public way, during his time in Maine. Again, he got here in 1970, and he he tried to fit in in the early years, and he he created work somewhat quietly, and then had started to have some shows. But in 1992, he was uh, charged with um, having sex with young boys on the island, and he was he faced trial in Rockland on the mainland in 1993, and was acquitted. Of, of a single charge. He originally faced three charges, two were dismissed. He was acquitted of the third. And um, um, he went back to the island, but faced the, faced the scorn. I don't think there's any, any, any other way to describe it, of the people who lived on the island who believed he was guilty. And he lived with the assumption of guilt from that moment on. And while some of his legal troubles ended in the courts, in 1993, they persisted in other ways. Um, he had troubles with the with the uh, with the tax assessors, and he didn't pay his taxes or didn't pay a large portion of his taxes for many years after those sex charges surfaced. And uh, he he got into trouble with the with the main revenue service at various times in his life, and he lived with this uh, with this bit of an aura of of um, legal. Um, a legal cloud over him for many, many years, unfortunately, in Maine, from the early 1990s until 2016, when this when this large civil suit was filed against him by his art dealer in the Southern District of New York. Uh, there are so many interesting characters that come into Robert Indiana's life, and, and I want to talk about a few of them. Uh, first of all, the relationship with uh, Simon, I hope I say the name right, the Salama Caro and the Morgan Art Foundation that... Uh, on the one hand, helped him get some money for some of those earlier works, but then, like a lot of those relationships, it went south. Yes, that's a that's again very very good summary of the circumstances, at least as I understand them. Yes, Simon Salamakara, you did a very good job with his name. Uh, Simon Salamakara became a fan of Robert Indiana in the 1980s. He was an art gallery owner dealer in London and had. Um, become reacquainted or acquainted with Indiana's work and, and had expressed an interest in working with him. And for many years and for quite a while, Indiana rebuffed those um, those offers or those attempts to do business with him. And But eventually, Simon Salmacaro persisted, and he – uh, agree, and Robert Indiana agreed to to work with him in a business sense, and they did a, a show together that was met with some success from Robert Indiana's perspective. I'm not sure if Simon would agree financially, but it, but it created a a, uh, a relationship uh, between them that pr- proved fruitful to both. And ultimately, uh, this led to a series of contracts in the late late 1990s, which, as you noted helped Robert Indiana out of his tax issues with the state of Maine and allowed him to reestablish his career after a very dark period in the 1990s and become another become again an internationally known artist with exhibitions not only in Maine and across the country but internationally as well Simon Salmacaro promised Robert Indiana that if he would do business with him he would reestablish his presence as an international artist and everything that Simon and promised he delivered. So uh, that was the foundation of their relationship in the late 1990s. And then another relationship that, that proved to be financially successful was working with Michael McKenzie, who paid him a uh, million dollars a year 
to do the HOPE artwork, which became a representation of the Obama campaign and presidency. It led to a late career boom, but then also as a result of that were other Indiana works that maybe weren't Indiana works, including one for Johnsonville Sausage. Yeah, brat, B-R-A-T. B-R-A-T, you know, two letters over each with the tilted R. Yes, that was the last last piece that uh, was associated with Robert Indiana. And um, from my reporting, Indiana got him received personally about $230,000 or so for brought. The question is whether he knew anything about it mm. or had anything to do with it. Michael McKenzie, as you noted, um, began working with Robert Indiana. Um, well, he, he, re, he reestablished a relationship with Robert Indiana in 2008 with the Peace Hope and um, that became associated with the Obama campaign. He had done work with Indiana before, had known him for many years, and he promised Indiana, as as Simon Salamakaro had promised Indiana, that he would help uh, reestablish his career in other ways, and, and Hope delivered for Indiana exactly what Michael McKenzie said it would do. But in so doing, Michael McKenzie became in direct conflict with Simon Salamakaro and the Morgan Art Foundation. So Simon Salamakaro represented Indiana in the international art market, and he also advised the Morgan Art Foundation. And so uh, he had a complicated relationship with both of those entities and sort of lived in this murky middle world. And Michael McKenzie was very much committed to Indiana and Mm -hmm. contemporary work hope and others as well Uh, that obviously yeah created the conflict and that's where that lawsuit in 2016 came from between those two art dealers and and then two other people who uh, weave their way into this story in fascinating ways Uh, sean hillgrove who worked as a a longtime assistant who late in robert indiana's life was was pretty much cut out of his life because he was concerned that there was some kind of elder abuse going on. And then Jamie Thomas, who ended up uh, as his assistant and who, depending on who you talk with on the island, was either a hero or a villain. Yeah, correct. Great. Again, great characterization. Yeah, um, Sean Hillgrove became we became uh, involved with Robert Indiana because he he knew the martial arts and Robert Indiana wanted a body wanted a bodyguard. He had been uh, held up in New York and felt vulnerable. And he had read about Sean Hillgrove in the local paper and wanted a bodyguard. And so he engaged his services and they became very, very close. Some would say like father and son. In fact, they were together uh, on 9-11 in New York and had um, lived through that experience in New York and came back to Vinyl Haven closer than ever before. And Sean Hillgrove was among the people who were were forced out of Indiana's life in the last few years by, according to court documents filed by the Morgan Art Foundation, by Jamie Thomas, who lived lived on Vinyl Haven and had known Indiana for many years and was hired as Indiana's late-in-life caretaker and hired to do many things, among others, uh, you know, help him in the studio and help him with his meals and, and help him be comfortable in his old age. And in that process, Sean Hillgrove, who again had been like a, a, a son to Indiana by many accounts, was forced out of Indiana's life and reported reported abuse to Indiana to the Department of Health and Human Services and um, f- foresaw much of what 
we learned in the court case later might have happened to Indiana in terms of him being isolated and not allowed to have contact with the outside world. Now, your first meeting, I, I believe, with Robert Indiana was in, in 2002. Uh, you found him to be extremely charming in that first meeting. You talked to him a number of times through the years. Were you surprised when, when somebody who had liked dealing with some members of the media sort of disappeared from public view? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I lost contact with Indiana uh, approximately 2016. Um, he had a show uh, at Bates College of Art um, with work about Bob Dylan, and I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, and I wanted to learn more about that work. And Michael McKenzie had approached me about doing a story about that exhibition, and I was immediately interested. Indiana had always talked to me about his artwork, but this was the first time he said no. Well, he didn't say no. Michael McKenzie said he wasn't available to talk about it. He he said he was feeling his age. Uh, he wasn't that he was ill, but he just wasn't up for interviews anymore, that he wanted to concentrate his energies on his artwork, um, which sounded a little bit dubious to me, only because Indiana was a great promoter of his work. I had always had, uh, thanks to his publicist, Kathleen Rogers and Ellsworth, I had always had great access to Indiana. And at this point, uh, Kathleen wasn't involved anymore. All of a sudden, Michael McKenzie was the gatekeeper, and I had no longer had access. So that made me a little bit suspicious. And uh, and as I learned a few years later, that was the beginning of the moment when Indiana had uh, changed his will and become isolated, and Mc Michael McKenzie and Jamie Thomas became larger players in his life. And and you mentioned Kathleen Rogers. That's one of the the saddest parts of the story uh, for me is reading what happened and, and some of the things she went through, especially when she tried to get Robert Indiana together with Mick Jagger's daughter Jade. Yes, exactly. So Kathleen Rogers became Robert Indiana's publicist in the late 1990s and remained his publicist uh, up to the point where, as with Sean Hillgrove, she was forced out of his life in and around 2014, 2015, and certainly by 2016. She had a, she had the opportunity to do a to connect Robert Indiana with with Jay Jagger, who was a jewelry designer, and uh, Indiana had always envisioned himself as a designer of of things I mean artwork and otherwise for rock stars and whatnot and and, and Kathleen had uh, arranged uh, the opportunity perhaps to do a deal and and uh, a representative of Jay Jaggers arrived on Vinyl Haven with the idea that she was going to have a meeting with Indiana and the morning of the meeting the, uh, the it was called off Jamie Thomas came out of the Star of Hope and told Kathleen that Indiana wasn't up for the meeting and that they would have to wait at least another day. And, and uh, things deteriorated from there, and the meeting never happened. And, again, that was a sign to Kathleen that things weren't right. And it was, unfortunately, one of a few things that had happened in a period of maybe 18 or 20 months where Indiana, who had, who had always – been able to you know speak for himself and do things suddenly became less accessible and uh deals fell through and uh, that was that was a big loss big loss in many ways for uh indiana and uh the opportunity that might have been for his artwork well it is an absolutely fascinating story it is so tremendously well researched and, and i think uh, bob what i what i like best about it is 
that the ending is ambiguous. We don't know for sure uh, who the who the good guys and the bad guys are. There are no there are no black and whites. There are a lot of grays in this book, and that to me is what helps make it such a fascinating story. Yeah, yes, exactly. There are a lot of still unanswered questions, and uh, yeah, I, the book tells people that. Uh, well, again, you use the word murky. It's a very murky story, and this this sort of connects some of the threads and whatnot. Uh, but it, uh, it it also uh, allows a lot of a lot of opportunity for people to interpret what might have happened and uh, what we still might learn. The book is called The Isolation Artist, Scandal, Deception, and the Last Days of Robert Indiana. It is a wonderful read. Bob Keyes, it's great to get the chance to talk with you. I've enjoyed your work for many, many years, and and the book is just wonderful. I, I say the same about your work, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you, Rich. Fascinating conversation. Terrific book as well, The Isolation Artist. That's author Bob Keyes with us here on Downtown. Our thanks to Bob, and thanks to the great Mike Farrell as well, and to you for giving a listen this week. We appreciate it. Hope you'll visit with us next time on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance.